The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the Journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. There's a multitude of signals from around the world and from the scientific literature as well as the surveillance literature showing the vaccines are incredibly impactful and effective. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. In this episode of Annals on Call, we discuss an article titled The Case for Mandating COVID-19 Vaccines for Healthcare Workers. This was published July 13, 2021. Joining me on the podcast are the three authors of this paper, Dr. Michael Klompas joins us again. He's an infectious disease physician and hospital epidemiologist, professor of population medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Madeline Pearson is the chief nursing officer and senior vice president for patient care services at Brigham Health. And Charles Morris is the associate chief medical officer at Brigham and Women's Hospital since 2016. We believe that you'll much better understand the case for mandatory vaccinations of healthcare workers after listening to this podcast. Welcome to the podcast. We have three authors of the paper, Michael, Madeline, and Chuck, who will help go through this paper and why it's so important. When you wrote this paper, and it came out a month ago uh, at the time we were recording, we knew that at many hospitals, there are significant numbers of healthcare workers who had not taken the vaccine. Why do you think that's so? I think that there are a number of reasons. They, they mirror, I think, what we hear in the broader society, which is that some people feel that it was inadequately tested. They worry about the safety of the vaccine. They worry about um, adverse effects in pregnancy, either for the pregnant mom or for the unborn child. Some simply don't believe in vaccines. Occasionally, there's a person who has conspiracy theories associated with the vaccine. So it's, it's the full panoply that's, uh, that's out there. Healthcare workers are like the rest of society. We have, share the same sort of sets of beliefs often. I think in addition, you know, the fact that it's not FDA approved at this point in time adds to some of the lack of trust uh, for the vaccine. But at the same time, I think as much as the healthcare workforce mirrors the non-healthcare workforce, I think the stakes are higher. Uh, it's an opportunity, obviously, for us to ensure that our workforce is healthy and ready to work, ready to care for our patients, uh, especially during a pandemic. And frankly, it's an opportunity for us to lead right through this and l- let healthcare set the tone and set the model and the expectation for what a vaccine requirement could mean in other sectors as well. The special thing, of course, about healthcare workers is that for much of society, the, the key benefit of the vaccine is really personal, is to protect their own health, and to a degree, those around them. For a healthcare worker, is to protect their own health and very much to protect those that we care for, where as healthcare workers, we have the special extra responsibility to make sure we do no harm. And 
what we've seen over the course of the past year and a half is that uh, hospital-based transmission does occur and that uh, the vaccine can be a powerful way to try to prevent that from happening. Since you um, wrote this paper, the number of hospitals that have added a mandatory vaccination requirement seems to be increasing uh, almost daily. I work part-time at our VA hospital and the, and the VA National uh, this week made this a requirement for people who had direct patient contact. So as we go through these points, should we just be looking at people who have direct patient contact or is everyone in the hospital system important? Keep that in mind. And so one of the things that you did is most hospitals require influenza vaccine for everybody who works there. And so you compared COVID to uh, influenza vaccine, because if you can have an influenza vaccine uh, requirement, why not a COVID uh, requirement? So the first thing you talked about is the morbidity and mortality of COVID-19 versus influenza. Right. And we pointed out that COVID is a more morbid and deadly disease compared to influenza. And the proof of that, what's made it most evident, has been the increase in uh, national deaths over the past year. Um, that's over and above what we'd expect compared to, 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 uh, to influenza alone. So in the U.S., the estimate was 522,000 excess deaths in 2020. So in and of itself, you can see over there that, that it has borne a tremendous impact upon society and morbidity. The point that you made, and you've already alluded to it, is that healthcare workers, because of what we do, because we're around a lot of patients and a lot of other workers, probably have a much higher probability of acquiring COVID than our colleagues uh, and friends who do not work in hospitals. How much of a threat is this? I mean, we, we know how to get good care, but how much of a threat is the COVID-19 to doctors, nurses, physical therapists, et cetera? It's a good question. Um, it's, it's a little bit controversial. There are studies that point in both directions. I think what we can all agree upon is that the majority of healthcare worker infections are actually acquired outside the hospital, um, in the home, as is for most of the rest of society. And that's, of course, because you spend the majority of your time in the home, you're in close contact with individuals, you're often not wearing masks, that setting, whereas the hospital is a very controlled environment. Nonetheless, uh, transmission does occasionally take place inside, uh, inside the hospital. The usual circumstances are twofold. It's either staff-to-staff um, -staff interactions in break rooms, work rooms, where they're unmasked and eating together, socializing. The other context, um, interestingly enough, is actually care for non-COVID patients who have unsuspected COVID. The irony is that those who actually do have COVID, um, by the time they're sick enough to get into the hospital, are often minimally contagious or non-contagious. They're in the inflammatory phase of the, the disorder rather than the viral replicative phase. And... If we know they're COVID, we take very, very fastidious precautions, right? We wear our N95s, our face eye protection, so on and so forth. We often have them in isolated areas of the hospital. And so transmission from a known COVID positive patient on appropriate precautions to a healthcare worker is extremely rare. But transmission from an undiagnosed patient with unsuspected COVID, that can occur occasionally. And transmission from a colleague, uh, that can occur occasionally. Madeline, in the nursing service, what, what is the impact on the nursing service when one of your nurses becomes COVID positive? And there's obviously an impact on that nurse, but what, 
what does this do for the entire nursing team? You know, the effect uh, can be quite difficult because, uh, you know, when, when Mike was talking about staff to staff in a break room, you know, there's, there have been uh, situations where there have been, you know, kind of spreading events where they've had meals together spread to each other. And, you know, there are, uh, there are situations where you can have, you know, uh, quite a number of nurses out on, one, on any given unit and which makes, you know, staffing, which is challenging to begin with, even that much harder you know, in that sense. And, you know, we've seen that here, we've seen that, you know, in other organizations um, in Massachusetts. And so getting vaccinated and, and affording that level of protection is that much more important uh, for us to protect each other, to come to work and take care of patients, as well as then to protect ourselves for when, you know, we go home and, you know, care for our families. Yeah, that, that's, that's the beauty of the vaccine is it doesn't matter where you're exposed, right. you get that protection at home, in the restaurant, the grocery store, your office, on the wards. Uh, it, it doesn't t- discriminate. And that's, uh, that, that's a wonderful thing. Bob, you had just one thing to build on. You know, you, you had referenced how we compared and contrasted the influenza vaccination. I, I think it's important just to sort of call out one point that we made, which is the differential impact of influenza disease and, and COVID disease, sort of building upon what Maddie said. You know, current standard is really that somebody with influenza or influenza-like illness is out for 24 hours uh, following resolution of symptoms. But of course, that's not the standard for somebody with documented COVID. And so the impact on the workforce, regardless of their role on the healthcare team of a, you know, a mandated 10-day absence of work is enormous. And I think everyone who's listening um, has appreciated what that impact of even a single member of the team being out for 10 days. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a much greater impact than an absence due to influenza-like illness. I'd add to that sort of Maddie's point, which is that often it's, it's multiple people in the same area who might be out at the same time. So that the impact on that, that area's operations is magnified because they've lost a critical mass. And so the impact that could have on hospital operations on the, on the rest of services, if you have challenged staffing an area and floating staff, closing beds, you know, reducing services. So the, the, the downstream effects, if you were, that that could have on hospital operations could be significant. Well, that was one of the things that uh, you addressed so nicely in this paper is the impact on healthcare delivery. And it's not just COVID patients, but it's everybody else. And, and Maddie, you, you started talking about that, but maybe you could expand that even more. You have a workforce and they, you know, care for patients in the hospital in many different areas, inpatient, you know, perioperative, procedural. And so not being able to staff one area could affect another area. As an example, if I have a surgical unit and I don't have nurses on the surgical unit, you know, that could affect my schedule of cases in the operating room that I then have to reduce because I can't care for them postoperatively, you know, in that sense. And you can see the, the domino effect that much of this can have throughout the organization. You know, there are competency issues that you need to address as far as when you move staff from one to the other or lack of a competency, if you are. And, and so those hospital operations can really uh, reduce scheduled cases, scheduled procedures for non-COVID. And so the, the, the arm, if you were, or the reach that this has throughout the organization could be substantial. And I think that all of us have sort of seen the, the, the myriad ways in which this pandemic has reverberated through our operations. And we, we allude to that in the paper. 
I mean, everything from the, obviously the universal masking, which uh, is ubiquitous. All of our attestations that we do, uh, we used a handheld, lots of people use different platforms, but it was a daily attestation on health. We restrict the density of our teams in certain care areas. We obviously constrain visitors. Education, the face of education at, at an academic center like ours and others um, is profoundly changed. I mean, the, the, the impact of this, of course, is enormous to the day-to-day -day operations um, of our hospital as, as we know it. And I think the three of us uh, would firmly uh, agree that vaccination, as we say, is a, is a pathway back to normalcy. One thing that probably has changed somewhat dramatically since you wrote the paper is trying to estimate the effectiveness of the vaccine, especially uh, with the emergence of the Delta variant. Yet, what I read is that the great majority of people who have to be hospitalized now are those who are not vaccinated. Could you talk a little bit about vaccine effectiveness and safety? Because those things are what I hear from people who haven't thought through this in the same way as uh, physicians and nurses have. I think that there's a multitude of signals from around the world and from the scientific literature as well as the surveillance literature showing the vaccines are incredibly impactful and effective. We've seen how the rollout of vaccines leads to a dramatic decrease in infections inside that population, that those who do get infected, those rare breakthroughs have much lower viral loads are much less likely to transmit to others are much, much, much less likely to have any kind of severe disease, require hospitalization or to, uh, to, to, to die. Even with the Delta variant, the estimate is that perhaps the vaccine effectiveness for the mRNA vaccines goes down from 95% to the mid eighties. That's still an incredibly effective vaccine uh, in, in the grand world of vaccines. And as you alluded to, that while there might be some diminution of effectiveness against symptomatic illness, the effectiveness against severe illness requiring hospitalization or death remains profound. So I, I think these are, are, these are real winner vaccines in terms of effectiveness. And likewise, it's remarkable to consider just the sheer number of these vaccines that have been given around the world, literally in the billions now. And um, the amount of safety signals have been vanishingly rare, but particularly for the mRNA vaccines. To me, to me, I sort of really flipped the switch in my head when I noted that we'd given an, we'd vaccinated more adults against COVID compared to flu. Yet we accept the safety of the flu vaccines become part of our, our, our routine. And yet more people have been vaccinated against flu for COVID compared to adults who receive vaccine against flu. And that to me has also been evidence of the, the, the safety of the, the preparation. So I, th I think this is a winner on both fronts. Chuck. Of course, uh, like every other state, we are seeing an increase in our COVID cases, uh, largely attributed to the Delta variant. Not surprisingly, because our workforce reflects the community, we're seeing a, a, an uptick in our healthcare worker infections. And because actually we're at an institution where we have very high rates already of our of our healthcare workforce vaccinated, many of those infections, you know, as a percent, are happening in vaccinated staff. And yet, to Mike's point those illnesses are actually either mild or even asymptomatic. So even at our one hospital, um, the experience is following exactly the, the data that Michael outlined. I mean, you can see that in, in our, you know, when you just kind of take that and you, you, you move that forward to just vaccination uh, rates in general in the state and, and how, what that's translating just to hospitalizations, you know. 
So uh, we have a very high uh, vaccination rate today in the hospital. We, we, you know, we're an 850 bed AMC. We have three COVID positive patients, none of them in the intensive care unit. And so, you know, that's a very strong good message as to, as to the, the uh, effectiveness of the vaccine. One of the things you did very nicely was contrast the effectiveness of the COVID vaccine to the typical influenza vaccine. I think that's a good thing to remind people of. Yeah, I mean, the, the flu vaccine, which again, we've accepted as, as a, a mandatory requirement for most healthcare workers, is really not that good. Uh, depending on the year, of course, it varies, but in many years might be in the 30 to 50% kind of a range. And so when you contrast that with an 85 to 95% effectiveness or mRNA vaccine, even against uh, Delta, it, it's just apples and oranges. So I'm going to ask you all to think out of the box now for a second. As more and more hospital systems go to requiring vaccines, do you think there'll be a downstream impact on other industries? Without question. I, I mean, I think you're already seeing that now. I, I think that just as the you know, the, the, the counsel for individuals who are contemplating whether vaccination is appropriate for them is go talk to your doctor, go talk to your nurse, go talk to those healthcare workers in your lives that you trust. I think as healthcare institutions act like that, we will we will lead at that level as well. And we should set and, that standard. Right, and, and we're seeing it already with large businesses requiring vaccination for return to in-person work, Google being the most notable and recent example. So, yeah, I do think it's coming. And as you alluded to, the, the federal government as well is going in this direction. I think it's very reassuring that uh, the legal cases have already been settled, that it is something that you can do. Uh, it is legal to do it. It's moral to do it, as uh, your wonderful article points out. Maybe this will be the stimulus that gets even more people to get vaccinated. I, I want to throw out one thing that I have been telling people for a while that uh, whether you're a healthcare worker or not, not getting vaccinated is extraordinarily selfish because you put everyone else at risk. It's one thing to say, well, I'm willing to roll the dice and see whether or not I get COVID. But if you get COVID, there are other people who are very likely to get COVID from you uh, and you're going to impact other people. So it's really a selfish thing to not get vaccinated. Am I overstating that? Not in the slightest particularly if you interact with vulnerable people. Right. And that could be mom and dad. Uh, that could be your patients. Well, I can't thank you all enough for writing this article, stimulating the discussion. I think that your article probably is what got major medical societies to all sign on to uh, this as a recommendation. And uh, more and more hospital systems are uh, going in this direction. And uh, hopefully some people who are listening will take action at their hospitals to encourage them to do this. I'd like each of you to have a last word for, for the audience. And uh, w because I'm a Southerner, we'll go, uh, we'll go first with Madeline. Please, please, please get vaccinated. Chuck. You know, I think, look, we, we, we approach people um, in healthcare at all ranges of readiness and sort of acceptance. And this is our work, right? Sort of uh, sharing our knowledge and moving people in a direction. So I believe the mandate is the right thing to do. And then um, the work, of course, is, is to sort of help people understand and explain the rationale. And that was really the goal of the paper. It's, it's, it's a mandate with explanation. And hopefully through that comes understanding. Michael. Vaccines save lives period 
thank you all so much for writing the paper and participating in this podcast. I know that most people listening to this find it very useful in having discussions with administrators, having discussions with patients, uh, and I can't thank you enough. Thank you very much. Thank you, Bob. We appreciate it. Thanks again, Bob. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. This wide-ranging discussion of the impact of COVID on healthcare, the efficacy of the vaccine, the safety of the vaccine, and the importance of protecting our healthcare workers and the patients that they care for is very, very important. COVID continues to disrupt hospitals, it disrupts lives, and it disrupts how we work in all of society. The authors make a great case for mandatory vaccination, first at health systems, but perhaps also with other industries as a positive side effect of this movement. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.